Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with transparent fees. Create an account today at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot com. Crypto.Law, a.k.a. Kelman Law, is a New York law firm run by some of the first lawyers to enter crypto in 2013 with expertise in litigation, dispute resolution, and anti-money laundering. Email them at info at kelman.law. Why should you get an MCO Visa card from Crypto.com? First, it's a beautiful metal card. You can top up the card with crypto and spend anywhere Visa is accepted. You also get up to 5% back on all spending. You know they'll pay for your Spotify and Netflix, too. You'll love the unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates if you travel a lot. Today's guest is Antoine Le Calve, blockchain data engineer at CoinMetrics. Welcome, Antoine. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. You wrote an analysis this week of the BitMEX liquidation spiral that occurred on Black Thursday, March 12th. I actually covered this in an interview with Kyle Samani on my other podcast, Unchained, earlier this week, but I thought that your post had some additional insights over what is the largest Bitcoin price drop since the Mt. Gox implosion. Give us an overview of what happened at BitMEX a couple of weeks ago. Yep. So uh, BitMEX, you know, it's a derivatives platform that allows people to trade uh, with high leverage on Bitcoin. And uh, we also had you know this pandemic going on in the world and some people decided to sell Bitcoin and quite a lot of it. And it triggered a sort of vicious cycle as more people sold Bitcoin. Uh, people that were trading on BitMEX with leverage got what you call liquidated, which basically amplified this cycle. And it all ended up somewhat dramatically as the BitNext platform experienced some issue, which turned out to be a sort of intentional attack, which stopped this huge drop on Black Thursday. Uh, so we sp I spent a bit of time last week looking at exactly what happened and also looking at the deeper consequences uh, of this event. It's not only that the price dropped, but it left an impact on, on the market structure of, on Bitcoin, on both BitMEX, but also outside of BitMEX. Yeah. And for listeners who didn't listen to my episode with Kyle, you should definitely check that out because he talks a lot about some of the triggers of the first price drop and then why there was a second one about 12 hours later. Um, one thing I do want to mention is that at the time we recorded, I was not aware about the DDoS um, attack on BitMEX, which is something that Antoine wrote about. So we'll dive more into that. But before we do that, Antoine, in your post, you wrote that BitMEX's perpetual inverse swap is critical to Bitcoin's price discovery. Why don't you describe what that financial product is and why it's so crucial? Yep. So um, prior to BitMEX's product, uh, basically you had 
two ways, two main ways to trade Bitcoin. One was the good old, like Mongox, you go on an exchange, you dep- someone deposits Bitcoins, you deposit fiat or the other way, and then you exchange uh, the fiat for Bitcoin or the Bitcoin to fiat. Uh, the other way that appeared a bit later was called futures, is a way that enables trading of what of Bitcoin in the future. Um, but the, inv- the innovation of BitMEX is to make, create a product that replicates the structure of, of the spot market of the, you know, like Mongox or Bitstamp or Coinbase, but allows users to trade with leverage. So instead of having to deposit one Bitcoin to trade one Bitcoin, you can deposit one Bitcoin and trade 100 Bitcoin. This has a lot of use in, for many use cases for people that want to make a quick buck on price movements. It could also be people that have Bitcoin and want to, to hedge their position. They think the price is going to drop, they deposit five Bitcoin, and then they transform that into a sort of synthetic dollar and, and wait for the price to drop. Um, so this product has been created in, in 2014 and is, a, some, I think, a novel product. I don't think it exists in uh, traditional finance because there's because it enables trading Bitcoin with Bitcoin, which is a bit weird, which is not a problem that appears in normal finance. And its relationship to price discovery was actually studied in um, in different um, research papers. It's something that is also noticed in traditional markets uh, that when there's future markets on, on a on a, a, a asset class, it's quite often that we see that the price uh, is updated first on these futures markets and then on the spot one, there's different reasons behind that. One of them is that it's easier to move to, to bigger trades on, on these platforms. And so in terms of the importance of this platform, um, then it was quite significant when there was, um, you know, there were some issues of the trading on this hugely volatile day. And as you wrote, BitMEX suffered a DDoS attack at 2.16 a.m. UTC. And interestingly, the DDoS actually affected the troll box, um, which, you know, kind of is more like a, a little messaging area. So how did the DDoS attack work and why did that affect trading? So BitMEX, you know, was started in, in 2014 and they created this troll box, basically a chat box for traders and even people at BitMEX to interact with one another. As time went on, it lost a bit of its importance, but it was still at, uh, at the time of the DDoS attack quite deeply embedded, like running on the same machine as the training engine. And someone found a flow in basically, I think it was requesting the history of messages for like the Spanish troll box that nobody was using in a while. And they found this a while ago that if they requested this Spanish troll box history, it would basically slow down the website a little bit. And whoever is behind that decided that uh, they could exploit that to basically put the platform to a crawl. Like nobody could trade on it. The, the disk and CPU usage were off the charts. Um, and they decided to use that on the day Bitcoin was dropping by, by a lot. Uh, and basically they stopped the, uh, the, the price movement and I went on more about how and why it stopped this price in, in this price movement in a newsletter. Yeah. Well, can you go into that a little more? Because the timing of this really seems quite calculated. What do you make of that? Well, I don't know the timing, whether you know, it's a bit still unclear if, whether what they expected 
was that by doing it, it would make the price go up or down because, you know, you would expect that when an exchange is unavailable, the price would go down. But as that day had been quite volatile, a lot of traders that were long Bitcoin, so that wanted the Bitcoin price to go up, ended up being liquidated. And uh, BitMEX has this uh, liquidation engine that ensures that, or tries to ensure that nobody loses more than what they put in. And as pe- more people were losing their bets on, Bit- on, on BitMEX, they were thinking the price was going to go up, but it kept going down and down and down. The engine had to take the reverse position of these traders. So the engine as well wanted to sell Bitcoin. Uh, and uh, so that made it so that the price, as more people, as the price went down, the price had to go down even more as BitMEX had to liquidate these positions. And whenever these, whoever did this attack triggered it, it made it impossible for anyone or most people to trade on BitMEX. And the effect of that is as this liquidation engine was probably the largest seller on the market or one of the largest sellers, uh, since it, this attack basically removed BitMEX from the markets. Uh, basically, you, when you remove a large seller, naturally keeping things equal, then the price should go up at least you know, or stop going down. And this is what happened. Uh, it was a bit of a shock as well, I guess, to many traders, because when you're on a very volatile day like that, and a lot of people basically have trades on BitMEX and trades on other exchanges that somewhat cancel out each other, when you lose one of them, uh, it also creates a lot of trouble. Maybe they have, for example, triggers that when you lose BitMEX, you close the position on your other exchange. So there's many, basically, when losing BitMEX availability to, due to this DDoS attack somewhat created a sort of shock in the system, both by removing the large, uh, largest seller in the market and also by probably shutting down a lot of trading, uh, trading operations. Wow. So let's dive a little bit more into those liquidations at the point um, that you're discussing. I think this is when $1.1 billion worth of contracts were liquidated. So can you dive a little bit more into how liquidations work on BitMEX? Yep. So when someone makes a trade on BitMEX, they have to put what is called margin. So if I want to bet uh, that the Bitcoin, I want to bet one Bitcoin that the price is going to go up, I have to put at least 0.01 Bitcoin on it, on this bet. It's like 100x leverage. And uh, there's um, some of this margin that you put up, so this this 1%, is kept aside as a buffer. So when the price goes the wrong way of your bet, at some point uh, you get your trade gets stopped so that you don't lose all the money. There's a small buffer that is kept of margin by the exchange to close this position to basically... Uh, you you were wrong. We're going to cancel your bet. Basically, if you were wanting to buy Bitcoin, we're going to sell it. If you were selling it, we're going to buy it so that you don't lose money. It's not always possible to do that at the right price. So the liquidation engine is basically the system that is in charge of closing the positions of traders that ran out of money, basically. And uh, its inner workings are somewhat, you know, mystery and have to be because if people knew exactly how it worked, it's basically a game of a human versus a robot, and oftentimes a robot loses, except maybe a chess. Uh, so the inner workings are somewhat obscure, but you know, the, it's basically a, a, an automated buyer-seller. In normal operations, half the people that go uh, that bet that Bitcoin is going to go up are wrong or down. It's rare that has happened on, on Black Thursday that everyone on one side, so everyone that wanted Bitcoin to go up 
ended up being wrong that day and, and quite dramatically. So um, this engine basically takes these positions of traders that basically get liquidated and tries to close them. The issue that happened on Black Thursday is that there were no, there were few people willing to bet or to take the other side, or maybe too many people actually got liquidated. Uh, there's also another mechanism that gets into play is the uh, insurance fund. There's been a lot of talk about BitMEX's insurance fund, but it's basically a way to make sure that uh, if even if the liquidation engine ma- doesn't manage to close the trader's position by making a small profit, basically you, you bet that Bitcoin is going to go up, you lose your bet, there's still a bit of money left in your in what you put in to try to make to close the position with the profit, but it can ha- still happen that this goes in a negative and the role of the insurance fund is to be basically a buffer of money that the liquidation engine can use as, as uh, losses and when it makes when this engine makes a profit, it goes towards this uh, insurance fund. And finally, there's a last mechanism that I actually don't know if it's been used in this Black Thursday. It's called auto deleveraging, and basically, when nothing works, what BitMEX do does to avoid uh, basically uh, losing people's money, or at least you know having people end up with negative balances, as it has sometimes happened on on other platforms, is to basically make people with winning positions pay people with or cover the losses of people with losing positions so that in the end, no one's end up owing BitMEX money. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit more about um, how Black Thursday has impacted the market since, since that day. Um, but first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Why should you get an MCO Visa card from crypto.com? First, it's a beautiful metal card. You can top up the card with crypto and spend anywhere Visa is accepted. You also get up to 5% back on all spending. You know they'll pay for your Spotify and Netflix, too. You'll love the unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates if you travel a lot. There are so many cool perks loaded in one card. Download the Crypto.com app now. Crypto.law is run by crypto OGs in New York who understand crypto and fintech. They were already operating in the space back in 2013, and they accept crypto as payment. One of the partners, Zachary Kelman, is known for drafting a bill submitted to the U.S. Congress in 2014 aimed at exempting on-chain Bitcoin transactions from U.S. regulations. The other founding partner, his brother Daniel Kelman, became well-known in the crypto law space for his work in the Mt. Gox civil rehabilitation. So if you operate a fintech business or have a dispute with some person or business involving crypto, or you just need legal advice related to crypto, info at kelman.law. That's K-E-L-M-A-N dot law, or just go to their website at www.crypto.law. When you think crypto, think Kelman. Back to my conversation with Antoine Lecalve. So in your blog post, you also looked at how Black Thursday has impacted liquidity since um, in, in a couple of weeks since. What did you find? Yep. So uh, BitMEX is a, a place used by a lot of uh, market participants of various uh, times, for example, OTC desks, market makers, and day traders to, to basically um, hedge, for example, some of their flows. For example, if you're an OTC desk and someone wants to give you a lot of Bitcoin, you might want to lock in that price on BitMEX by going short. Uh, and there's many other use cases what happened on BitMEX that day is that probably a lot of these market participants lost money. Uh, basically, if you were long, if you had a, a position on BitMEX before the price dropped by like 40%, it 
it's quite unlikely that you were not liquidated or at least didn't lose a lot of money. And what we've noticed uh, using our reference rates and also our so can metrics, we store the uh, all the market data from many exchanges so that allows us to run analysis like this is that on a spot market, so the non-BitMEX, non-derivatives, we've seen an impact on the liquidity. So instead of being easily, instead of traders being easily able to buy Bitcoins by creating a, a very small impact on the market, now there's a large, especially after this shock of you know, 40% down in one day, uh, a lot of people that usually provide this liquidity stop doing it. So it, there's several explanations. One, it is quite normal, and we've noticed that for past events, is that when the price goes up or down, basically when the volatility goes up, people whose job is to provide liquidity in the market and who make money based on that market makers usually widen the spread. So instead of you know quoting very tight spreads, so they buy a 99 cents and they sell at $101, they would widen the spread and maybe buy a 95 cents and buy at 1.05. Um, and what, uh, so this is a normal reaction, but usually this disappears. So the liquidity shock happens and a few hours afterwards, they go back to quoting what they were quoting before. But this has not happened yet. On the spot markets, I, I ran the analysis again this morning. The, the, the spreads are still higher than they were before March 12th. And on BitMEX, it's even wider. While on the spot markets or Coinbase on Kraken on Bitstamp, it seems that the liquidity has been coming back slowly over time. It seems that on, on BitMEX, it still hasn't gone to what it was before. But there's also another reason maybe behind the, uh, other than the price dropping by a lot, it could be that a lot of these uh, part, market participants now also work with traditional finance. They, they are hedge funds. They're looking, playing into Bitcoin, but also trading other assets. And they could just have stopped or limited their operations drastically in all markets, including cryptocurrencies due to the crisis that the world is currently facing. Hmm. Yeah, that's I, that part was really fascinating in your post, and I do wonder what will happen. But then uh, that last bit that you said there made me um, also wonder, you know, do you feel like, what, what would you say the coronavirus is teaching us about how Bitcoin is correlated to traditional financial assets? Are there any conclusions we can draw yet? It's still, you know, the, the, it's still very hard. So we've noticed and we've wrote in our newsletter and past issues about some events where we could clearly see that the Bitcoin price was reacting to external events. For example, when there were uh, rockets fired by Iran in Saudi Arabia, we could clearly see an impact. Even recently, uh, there was a clear impact, at least on a very short term, from the declaration of, of, of the Fed of basically, you know, unlimited quantitative easing we could see the price go up. But when you zoom out, these impacts are less visible. So Bitcoin still has a sort of a mind of its own. But on a day-to-day -day basis, you can still spot the impacts of, of, uh, of price, uh, of external shock events. I think for the coronavirus, the uh, impact will still take quite a while to see. You know, there's a lot of activity going on by central banks in the US, in Europe, and in Asia about Know, uh, clear, uh, dealing with this issue and with the impact on the economy. But I think uh, it will take a long time if it's clearly visible to see on the Bitcoin price because these things you know, take time. If every American gets $1,200 from the Fed, 
there will not be, maybe some will buy Bitcoin with it, but I don't know how clearly it would be visible to see it. Yeah, well, given what's going on here, I, for my part, I I don't think a lot of people will be buying Bitcoin with it, but I could be proven wrong. We will see. Um, but over this time period, over the next few months, as coronavirus continues to affect, um, frankly, just the entire globe, what will you be looking for to understand that question better? Like, what are some of the metrics that you and your team will be looking at? That's a good question. Um, a lot of, so, you know, of course, the price is one of the main metrics that will probably anchor us the better the information, uh, you know, the new information with this crisis. But if uh, we take from different positions, if we think that it's new users that will come online, then we can look at metrics like, you know, how many addresses own Bitcoin or how many addresses own more than X uh, amount of Bitcoin. Uh, we could look as well at, you know, uh, transfers count. You know, if people buy Bitcoin, usually, I mean, it's recommended that they don't leave all of it on the exchange. So they would move some of it offline to hardware wallets or other things like that. So we can see that on the chain by looking at, you know, how many people transact Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. Um, but, you know, still, it's still unclear exactly, you know, how things will change. And there's also, you know, other Bitcoin-specific events that will happen in the near future at the same time as this crisis. And for example, the main one will be the Bitcoin halving, for which of which the consequences are still a hotly debated topic. But I think it's going to align with, you know, probably the deep part of the coming or still ongoing economical crisis, as it's in like two months. And, you know, a lot of people fight for unemployment and the impact of that will be felt in the coming weeks, as the same as a halving. So even though, you know, there will probably be an impact. I don't know how clear it will be to, to see, uh, you know, as because other events happen at the same time. Yeah. And I did talk about this on last week's show, but, um, the, I think this was the analysis you guys sent out last week on Black Thursday. It appeared that a lot of the Bitcoin that was exchanging hands was, um, from newer buyers who were, um, trading. So, um, you know, we'll, I guess we'll, that would be another metric that we could keep watching is, you know, how long-term holders react during this whole crisis. Um, well, anyway, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great having you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Don't forget, next up is the news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Are you interested in getting into the cryptocurrency markets, but don't know where to start building your portfolio? eToro has the answer for you. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. With Copy Trader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders at the exact price in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply sign up and copy the trader of your choice. Any profits they make, you do too, proportional to your investment. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees, all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline, Bitcoin mining difficulty has second biggest drop in history. Coindesk reports Bitcoin's mining difficulty declined by 16% on March 26th after the massive sell-off in Bitcoin on Black Thursday, March 12th. 
It is now at $13.91 trillion, a level not seen since December 20th. This decline in difficulty comes at an especially bad time. Three days before Black Thursday, Bitcoin mining difficulty reached an all-time high. Now, with miners falling off, and since the mining difficulty takes 2016 blocks to adjust, it is now projected that it won't adjust for another 17 days rather than the typical two weeks. However, with the Bitcoin price rising past 6600 and current decreased difficulty, older mining equipment like Bitmain's Antminer S9 is now profitable again. Also, and this news bit is only tangentially related, but a nominee to CME's board of directors has suggested that the derivatives trading behemoths start mining Bitcoin. Next headline, digital dollars discussed as part of stimulus. After all the discussion of Libra and central bank digital currencies last year, digital dollars did briefly appear in drafts of the coronavirus relief bill before the House this week, but did not survive the final cut. The bill initially envisioned a digital payment system in which the Fed and its member banks could directly send funds to those who need financial support. Catherine Coley, of CEO of Binance US, argued in a Coindesk op-ed last weekend that a blockchain-based stablecoin would be a good vehicle for providing direct stimulus because of the fact that digital dollars cannot accidentally expose people to the coronavirus, plus they also can be distributed to people without stable residences. However, in a Coindesk article, Daniel Gorfine, the former chief innovation officer at the CFTC, who has proposed a digital dollar with former CFT chairman Christopher Giancarlo, argued that implementing a central bank digital currency should not be done in a hurried fashion. He said, quote, I think it's really important that this doesn't cause any delays in getting emergency funding to needy businesses and individuals through existing channels. Speaking of that digital dollar venture, the Digital Dollar Foundation, which is founded by Giancarlo, also known as CryptoDad, named a couple dozen former government officials and industry experts to its board, including Sheila Warren, head of the World Economic Forum's blockchain efforts, and Don Wilson, founder and CEO of trading firm DRW. Next headline, Court Deems Telegram's Token Distribution a Likely Violation of Securities Law. A New York federal court issued a preliminary injunction against the distribution of Telegram's Gram token, saying it would violate U.S. securities laws. Through, though a preliminary injunction is not final, it is likely that there will be a permanent injunction, and that even if Telegram appeals, it would not be successful. The block reports that at least 10 Telegram investors are inclined to take 72% of the invested funds back. In October, Telegram offered them an option to get 77% of their money back, but they instead agreed to postpone the launch of the TUN network to April 30th. The drop from 77 to 72% is due to some funds having been spent on development since then. Yakov Berinsky, head of Russian crypto investment firm Hash CIB, said of this 72% deal, quote, Considering what is happening in the financial markets, this offer now looks like much better than in October. On a separate track, the Tun Community Foundation, a group of developers and investors supporting the Telegram Open Network, also called Tun, are looking at ways to launch the network without the company's participation. After all, the code necessary for launch has already been published. Code, uh, Coindesk reports, quote, the company 
the community would only need to generate the first batch of transactions or Genesis block and provide at least 13 computers known as validators to run the network. Next headline, the man behind the Petro. Nathaniel Popper and Anna Vanessa Herrero of the New York Times wrote a great feature story on Gabriel Jimenez, a Venezuelan cryptocurrency entrepreneur who had protested President Nicolas Maduro, but when asked to help create a national digital currency, thought it was an opportunity to change his country from within. He told the Times, quote, The actual goal of the project was to change the economic model of the oppressive regime. This was my mission and my gamble in a bet that ended costing ended up costing everything I had in my life, my friends, my partners, my reputation, my love, my company, and my country. Definitely check this story out for a great long read this week and for some news that's not related to the coronavirus. <laughs> Next headline, how crypto companies and projects rank across five spectrums of trust. For the Multicoin Capital blog, Tony Shang wrote a monster piece on trust in crypto and how it is multidimensional, not binary. He breaks it down into five properties, custody, immutability, verifiable security, legal and regulatory protections, and insurance. He then assesses a number of crypto companies and projects, including Backed, Coinbase, Tether, Compound, Maker, and Uniswap, among others, along these spectrums. Some of the more interesting analyses are, for instance, the immutability spectrum, which shows almost all the companies and even some DeFi projects huddled toward the mutable side, which I think is probably a reflection of how nascent the industry still is. In the years to come, we may see more in the most immutable column where Uniswap currently sits alone. In contrast, the spectrum for custody is more spread out, probably reflecting the variety in consumer choice. The post also ends with an analysis of the recent BZX attacks and how the BZX protocol scores on these factors. Shang writes, quote, This episode concluded with relatively minor losses, about $1 million total, but it's not hard to imagine how greater damages could occur in larger systems with more malicious actors. Fun bits! Coinmetrics raises $6 million in Series A funding. Assuming you listened to the interview with Antoine Le Calvé earlier in the show, you may have wondered how I neglected to mention that Coinmetrics just announced its Series A funding round. Well, the news didn't break until after we wrapped recording, and he didn't mention it, so I didn't know. But now I'll take the opportunity to say congratulations to him and the team at Coinmetrics, and to let you all know that the round was led by Highland Capital Partners, with participation from Communitas Capital, Avon Ventures, and Digital Currency Group, among others. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Antoine and Coinmetrics, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you enjoy these news recaps, then why not sign up for The Real Deal, the weekly newsletter I publish every Friday. Some of you have asked me for the links to the stories I mentioned on the show, and now you can get them delivered right to your inbox. Go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to sign up. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Hoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at ZLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thank you.